And Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Meeting with royalty is a big deal. Whether it is the Sultan of Brunei, the Emperor of Japan, a member of the British royal family, entering into the presence, acknowledging the authority of a prince or princess, a king or queen, some royal personage, is a real thing. It takes some doing, takes some practice. Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister of Australia, found this out the hard way. During a 1992 visit by Queen Elizabeth II to Australia, Keating, while introducing the British monarch to a line of Sydney dignitaries, ever so gently placed his hand on Elizabeth's shoulder, leading her, guiding her down the line. This simple touch violated a basic rule of etiquette upon approaching a member of the royal family. You don't touch your betters. For this egregious offense against decorum, a simple hand on the shoulder, there was a big controversy, and the British tabloids named Keating the Lizard of Oz. Uh, That's an old reference, but I get you get the meaning it was not good. It didn't reflect well on him. Today, we make our approach to King Jesus. Today is the Feast of Christ our King, the final Sunday in the liturgical year. The basic premise of our worship today is that Jesus is King of Kings. That assumption of Jesus' reign and rule in all the world, in all reality, is in fact the basic premise of our life as a church and as followers of Jesus every day, every week. We worship, we live out of this presumption. The lordship, the triumph of Jesus, his presence and place as the highest and most powerful person in the universe. Today, I am not going to argue for the validity of this claim. We're just going to assume it. If you have questions about the plausibility of that claim or how you might come to believe it, I would love to talk to you about that. We can grab coffee. But today, I want to talk about our approach how it is that we might live and draw further into the recognition of Jesus as king. Meeting with royalty, demonstrating our allegiance, is a real thing. There are specific ways to draw near, ways to acknowledge and recognize Jesus as king. And this morning, from our reading in John 11, there are two specific invitations I believe King Jesus has for us. Two invitations related to his raising of Lazarus, this most remarkable miracle outside of his own resurrection. Invitations for how we might acknowledge his kingship and make our approach to him as Lord of all. Before we jump in and explore our text from John 11, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence among your people. And we ask now that you, Holy Spirit, would move in and among us, that you who inspired John to recall and record these words accurately for us, would you now enliven our hearts and our minds to see the truth of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, perhaps like never before. We pray this with expectancy in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the two invitations relate specifically to these explicit two commands found in John 11. That is, first we approach by taking away the stone 
And second, by coming out of the grave, out of the place of death. But before we expand on these invitations, I want to take a few minutes to describe some aspects of Jesus' kingship, of his rule, that are suggested in John 11 as well. And my hope is that as we briefly focus on these characteristics, these qualities of Jesus' reign, a picture will emerge, a picture of the remarkable goodness of Jesus' kingship. I don't want you to hear the invitations, the commands of Jesus as an exhortation like eat your peas or clean up your room like a chore. My hope is that as we recognize the audacious goodness of Jesus as king, we'll receive his commands, his exhortations as encouragement to do exactly what we want, to do what is welcome and pleasing to us. So as we look at John 11, a few specific qualities of his kingship are notable. And these qualities distinguish Jesus from every other ruler we might imagine. As Westerners, as Americans, as Texans. The very idea of a monarch, a ruler, is something of an affront. Sensibilities are thoroughly democratic, thoroughly independent. The New York Times, as a matter of fact, today had a column by Jessica Gross uh, relating to like generations and how Generation Z or millennials, I'm a geriatric millennial, barely a millennial, but Gross's column is about how those of us in, in those generations have been steeped in what she names as a formative distrust, a formative distrust of authority, religious and otherwise, a formative distrust of the institutions like politics and media, Congress, and this sort of thing. And that our reflex is then to resent the very idea of authority. We don't trust it, often with very good reason. But the qualities that emerge in John 11 regarding Jesus' kingship suggest that his reign is something different altogether, something we can rejoice and delight in, something we can welcome and pursue. And the qualities that emerge in John 11 about Jesus as king are, that I want to highlight, are compassion, intimacy, and power. Life-giving power. Now, the primary question regarding any authority is whether it is benevolent or not. Authority is an inescapable reality in our lives from the moment of our birth, right? You all, we all have parents. But the question of that authority's place in our lives is related to whether it is malignant or whether it is for our good. That is of primary consequence. Is the authority over us one we can welcome? And like Gross suggests in her column in the New York Times today, we are all very aware of how those in authority so often use their powers in ways that serve themselves that are indifferent to those over whom they have authority. You and I, I'm sure, can think of examples. But Jesus' reign, we see in John 11, from the very first verse in our reading this morning, is marked differently. His reign is marked by feeling. We saw this last week in Jesus weeping over the death of Lazarus, and we see it here again as he is deeply moved, as verse 38 communicates. Jesus' kingship is marked by feeling, by compassion, by empathy. Jesus cares about Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. That's the testimony of John 11. And he cares at some risk and some cost to himself. 
You'll remember from a few weeks back that Jesus says, we need to go to Bethany. Lazarus is ill. Lazarus is dying. Lazarus is dead. And the disciples say, don't do that. That's a dangerous thing for you to do. There's risk involved. And in the verses immediately after our reading this morning, we see that Jesus' action here, his raising of Lazarus, is the immediate, explicit trigger of the events that will lead to his crucifixion. Immediately, people are plotting to kill Jesus because of what he does for Lazarus. His care, his compassion, his feeling come with a cost. But such is his shepherding, such is his kingship, that he willingly pays it. He goes through with it. Jesus cares about you. He feels with and for you. Your struggles and suffering are not irrelevant to him. Even as he reigns and rules over all things, you are not simply one among many to King Jesus. Later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus calls his followers, his disciples, friends. No longer servants, no longer subjects, but friends. Friends of the Most High King, a friend for whom he feels. He has compassion. This feeling relates to the second quality of Jesus' kingship that I want to highlight, and that is intimacy. The Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, he ran afoul of this custom that is designed, was designed to emphasize the distance between the ruler and their subjects, right? Don't touch them. They exist at a remove, separated from everyday experience. Don't let your grubby, ordinary hands on them. They're different. In certain cultures, there is an emphasis that the ruler is a deity, right? Removed from humanity, separated at a distance. But as the word made flesh, the logic, the thrust of Jesus' ruling, of his kingship, is exactly the opposite. There is not this gulf opened up, this separation. But in Jesus' reign and rule, there is an identification with us. There is a drawing near to us. There is an empathizing with you and I as he takes on our human frame. Jesus knows your struggle. He knows your suffering. As king, he does not stand far off, but enters into our lives. Knows what it is that burdens us. That is the thrust of Jesus' ministry among us. In Jane Austen's Emma, Mr. Knightley demonstrates this quality. He exemplifies it. He is among the most privileged, most powerful characters in the book. But in this powerful moment, he extends himself. He uses that power to benefit Harriet Smith, common-born, low-born, excluded at the ball from any participation in the dance. And he, from the position of power, extends himself, draws her in that she might share, that she might participate in the very center of things. Anytime a person in authority does this, they are following in the pattern of Jesus. In verses 41 and 42, Jesus prays this very short prayer. And that prayer is this window into the relationship that he shares with God the Father. And he explicitly says, I am praying this that the people around 
might bear witness to the intimacy that we share. His hearers in hearing the prayer, in reading the prayer as we do, are drawn in to this intimate place, this intimate relationship that God the Son and God the Father share. That action characterizes Jesus' kingship. He doesn't reign for his own benefit. He does not stand far off for his own aggrandizement, but rules in such a way that others might be elevated, others might be drawn in, drawn into life, into the abundant life he shares with God the Father. At Church of the Cross, we use this phrase, the life of God for the good of the world, in part to remember this truth that Jesus enters into humanity, plunges into creation, that we might be drawn into his intimate life, into the life of God. In researching some for this sermon, one of the most delightful details I discovered is that the current emperor of Japan is known to have a lifelong fascination for roads and cars and trucks and transportation. As a boy, he became enraptured by the ancient roadway near the palace in which he lived, and since that time has devoted much of his time to the study of the history of transportation, to learning about ancient ways of being transported. It's very delightful. The emperor of Japan is this geeky little boy in this way. How relatable. Imagine you met the emperor. And rather than pomp and circumstance, he called you into his confidence and began to regale you with stories of his fascination, sharing with you, drawing you in to his interests, his passions. What a weird but good privilege. That is a poor picture of what it is that Jesus does for us. He draws us into his life through the cross, through the giving of himself, and now through his reign and rule. He rules in such a way that you and I become participants, are known and named as friends, come to share with what he shares in the Father, sharing in their life. And the nature of that life is remarkable. The nature of that life is remarkable because it has remarkable power. The life of God is such that the intimacy we come to share with Jesus extends even beyond the grave. The life of God is of such power that the intimacy he extends to us continues even through death. A subtle detail in our text this morning is that throughout, Lazarus is referred to only as the dead man. In death, his individuality, his personhood, even his name in some way have been erased. He's just the dead one. The only time that he is named in this section in our text this morning is when Jesus calls into the grave and calls him by name, Lazarus. The life, the intimacy that Jesus offers extends across the great divide into death. That is something that no one on the presidential ticket next year can offer you. Jesus is singular in this capacity, that in his reign and in his rule, death is not the same. The greatest rulers, the greatest empires are all subject to death, to decay. There's that phrase used in sports, time is undefeated. But the life of Jesus that we come to share in by his good gift is wholly distinct. It has power 
It has vitality. It has life-giving power, even in the valley of the shadow of death. If Jesus were only a ruler who felt for us, who cared for us, that would be nice. If his rule was characterized by intimacy, that would be sweet. But what is most perhaps remarkable about Jesus is that these qualities are conjoined to real and unparalleled power. Power to affect change in the world, in the world of Lazarus and in your world today. Power even over death. You should welcome Jesus' reign and rule. Welcome him as king. king. Yes, because he's kind. He's caring. He is gentle and lowly. He is the lamb who was slain. But also because he is the most powerful, most effectual ruler that you or I could imagine. He is the lion, as scripture says. And one scholar actually translates, taking some artistic license, verse 43, where it says, Jesus called with a loud voice. This writer translated, he roared a great roar. Out of the deep feeling for us, out of anger at the powers of death and hell that diminish, enslave, dehumanize us, Jesus calls out. He roars. And with the same voice that said, let there be light in the beginning, with the same voice that spoke the universe into being, with the same voice that stills the wind and the waves, he speaks with power. Some early Christian writers, thinkers commenting on this moment suggested that Jesus had to call Lazarus specifically because if he simply spoke, come out, all of the graves in the area would have been emptied. Such was his power. He's like, only Lazarus today. Such is his capacity. Capacity to give life. So what are the things that vex you, that trouble you? What are those things that cause you fear, that harass you? The powers within yourself, within the world that intimidate and cow you. Jesus has the capacity, has the power to protect you and to see you through. To welcome him as king is to welcome one who has the power to give life, abundant, indestructible life. He is the light of the world, the light that is life, the light that brings life. You should welcome Jesus' reign because he is tender and caring, because he draws us to himself intimately. And you should welcome him as ruler because you want you that in a way that no other power, no other ruler can. So how? How do we welcome him as ruler? How do we draw near to him who has life-giving power? These are the two specific exhortations, specific commands. Take away the stone and come out of the grave. Take away the stone. Welcoming Jesus' lordship in our lives involves granting him access to those parts that we might prefer to keep covered up. In verse 39, Jesus instructs that the stone be removed from Lazarus's grave. Materially, this is not a necessary step for the miracle to be completed. It's not like Jesus, who has the words to call Lazarus out of death, has bad cell service or something, right? Like, I need a direct line of sight, otherwise the miracle can't happen. No, that's not what's going on. There is a clue as to why Jesus commands this in his response to Martha. In verse 40, Jesus makes this connection between faith 
and witnessing, seeing the glory of God, seeing his power to bring life over death in action. If you want to see the glory, you have to have faith. And that faith takes concrete expression, move the stone. Martha's objection is totally understandable. It's going to be gross. It's going to be improper and inconvenient. Nobody acts like this at a funeral. But if you want to see the glory, you have to trust. Trust that Jesus is not going to be embarrassed. Trust that he's not going to be overwhelmed. Trust that his power and grace are sufficient to whatever is found behind that stone. Trust that he's worthy of those things we'd prefer to keep hidden. A feature of royalty is, of course, the priority of their needs, their agenda. I've got Jane Austen on the brain because we watched the movie Emma from a few years ago earlier this week as our family. It's quite fun. And a subtext of that movie is the way that servants wait hand and foot on the whims and needs of their employers. They are inconvenienced on the behalf of the gentry. Jesus is not like other rulers. He does not exploit. He shares life and power. He cares for us. But a question we might ask ourselves is how willing are we to be inconvenienced by King Jesus? How willing are we to sacrifice our sense of what is proper or best? How willing are we to allow his agenda to predominate? Jesus means to bring abundant life to you. He means for you to see his glory on display. But he will not force himself on you, thanks be to God. The stone must be moved, in this case, as an act of welcoming faith, an expression of trust, real-world trust. And the thing about moving the stone is that it is inconvenient. It's there for a reason. It takes some effort to move, to welcome his reign, to receive the life that he longs to bring, to see the glory, requires faith. I wonder if a very basic way you and I might express our trust in King Jesus a way that we might take away the stone is through the practice of prayer in community. What are the areas that we would prefer to keep private and locked away? The areas of quiet desperation, the places we dare not speak of, the sadnesses and fears that fester, that have an odor. Jesus' command to you and I today is to roll away the stone. You have a very concrete opportunity later on in the service, prayer partners in the back corner, And it's inconvenient. You have to get up and move. And maybe you feel like it has an odor, the odor of desperation, of not having it all together. You can entrust yourself to Jesus' caring and tender kingship. You can set your faith upon his power to bring life to the dead places. Welcome his life-giving rule. The second command that King Jesus offers is this call to Lazarus to come out of the grave. I've noticed over the last few years a number of bumper stickers, a few, not so many, that I feel like are particular to the United States. And they'll usually have the name of a former president, and they'll say, blah, 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 is my president. And it's, like I said, usually not the president currently in power. Sometimes my might be italicized to really emphasize the point. 
This is a curious thing for a Canadian. Nobody, I've never seen a, pair, uh, a uh, bumper sticker that says, like, Paul Martin is my prime minister or something. And y'all are like, who's Paul Martin? Um, <laughs> prime, Canadian prime minister, 2005, very brief run. <laughs> but what's going on there? My suspicion is that the people who have those bumper stickers, they have license plates. I'm assuming they pay their taxes. In some way, they are participating in the system that is under the current president. But what they're, communic they're recognizing in some way that the current president has legitimate power is ro ruling. But what they're communicating is that their allegiance is not aligned with him, that they're not for him, that they don't, at some deep level, welcome his reign and rule. This same idea exists in scripture. The demons, the gospels say, recognize Jesus' lordship. Those spiritual forces opposed to God's purposes recognize Jesus, but they don't welcome his reign. They're not aligned or allied to his reign and rule. That is where judgment comes in. What I think there is is an invitation in Jesus' call, come out, come out of the grave, to greater alignment with his reign and rule, with his life-giving purposes. With a loud voice in verse 33, Jesus speaks into this place of lifelessness and he calls forth new life. He declares it. He commands it. In this place that you and I would not expect, at the back of the grave, Jesus says, I rule and reign there too. And that's objective reality. That is true. There is nowhere that he does not have power. But we can choose to live as though his rule is real, effectual, and welcome or not. This same voice, this same power is declared over you, over your life and mine. The moment of our baptism, the moment of our confession in him, the same power that raised Lazarus, that raised Jesus is at work in our bodies, in our lives. We share in the indestructible life of God. So the invitation, the command, the exhortation is to live in line with that truth. I hear in this command to Lazarus an invitation for us personally and as a community to enter more fully into the life of abundance and freedom that Jesus has for us, to set out on the adventure of his good rule in our lives, to leave behind those death-dealing patterns of thinking and acting that do not accord with the goodness of his life-giving rule, patterns of sin, patterns of fear, patterns of disbelief. Jesus' command to Lazarus to come out is paired, you'll notice, with this command to those witnessing the miracle to remove the grave clothes from him. Take off the trappings of this dead end life. Move into something new. That this command is given to others, not to Lazarus specifically, speaks, I think, to our powerlessness in and of ourselves to set aside the entanglements of sin and death. But such life-giving work can be undertaken in reception of Jesus' gift, in obedience to him, and in the company of his people. Whatever our situation today, however long we have acknowledged Jesus as king, whatever the state of our hearts and our lives, there is the call over us, to us today, to come further out, to leave death and all its friends further behind to more completely welcome Jesus' life-giving rule. What might it mean for you to do so today? Is there some fresh obedience?
some new rhythm of holiness in your life, some new expression of intimacy that Jesus is commanding in your life? Is there a deeper conversion from a mindset of scarcity? Is there a call to offer some area of your life that you've kept close, that you've held back your work, your finances, your relationships, and offer that to him? Is there a call to pray earnestly for healing in your body, heart, and soul in the lifeless places? I do not know what the call for you is. But I do know that such a call exists to each and every one of us, to us as a community. Jesus, the king of all things, the lamb, caring and intimate, and yet the lion, powerful and mighty to save, calls in a loud and tender voice, in a great and gracious roar, calls us by name, out of death, and into life. So roll away the stone. Come out to meet him. Let us welcome the life-giving rule of King Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.